Many of us have several copies of God's Word lying around our homes. But of course, it wasn't always like that. There was a time in the English-speaking world where it was actually illegal to teach someone the Bible in English. And so, English men and women had no Bibles in their homes. They had no ability to learn the Bible. Actually, it was uh, illegal even to teach children the truth of God's Word, so that some men and women were literally burned at the stake for teaching their children the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. Can you imagine anything so evil as that? Most English men and women knew nothing about the Bible because the Roman Catholic Church kept the truth of God's Word locked up. But God raised up someone to write that situation. His name was William Tyndale. And he had a burning passion that the people of England would be able to read God's word in their own language. He once told a Roman Catholic priest that he would translate the Bible into English so that the plowboy behind the plow would know more about God's word than that priest did. Tyndale couldn't work in England, so he had to move to the continent. He moved to Germany, where he ended up translating the Bible from Greek into English. And then those Bibles were smuggled into England, and English men and women began to be able to read God's Word in their own heart language. You know, but there was a cost, there was a price for Tyndale to pay for his disobedience of the Roman Catholic authorities of his day. He infuriated them by his determination to give God's word to the people, and so they arrested him and ultimately sentenced him to death, and he died by having a chain put around his neck, and he was strangled to death, and then his body was burned. But his final words were this, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. Why would Tyndale give his life so that he could translate the Bible into English? What drove him to defy the authorities of his day, even though he meant that it would mean death? Well, the simple reality is that Tyndale understood the value of God's word. He understands what this word does, that this word explains to us who God is, his holiness, his goodness, his love, that God's word reveals our sin so that we might turn from that sin, that God's word contains the very wisdom of God that leads men and women, boys and girls, unto salvation. In short, Tyndale understood that God's word is precious. And so he was willing to give his life so that you and I, some 500 years later now, sit with copies of God's word in our heart language on our laps. This morning, we're going to study Psalm 119, which unpacks for us the surpassing value of God's word. As we do so, my prayer is that God will increase our love for his word uh, so that it won't collect dust in our homes, but instead each day we will pick it up and we will read it and we will meet with our God through his word. Now at 176 verses, Psalm 119 is the longest psalm in the Psalter and it's also the longest chapter in the Bible and it is filled with truth. So as I studied the psalm this week, I counted some 78 requests and 33 verses of praise, some 65 statements of personal faithfulness, four statements of judgment against the wicked, 24 statements of truth, 14 statements of spiritual longing, and one confession that has encouraged God's people as you get to the end and you realize that the psalmist was a man who needed a savior and he has a savior and that savior is Jesus Christ. Now, the clear focus of Psalm 119 is God's word. Commentators disagree about how many verses do not 
explicitly speak of God's word, but all agree that at least 171 of 176 verses uh, explicitly, openly speak of and teach about God's word. Now, in the psalm, as you studied on your own, you'll see that God's word is referred to in many different ways. It is called God's law, his testimonies, his precepts, his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his word, and his way. And really, one of the, one of the amazing aspects of this psalm is that as you read through it, even though some of the themes of truth about God's word are repeated over and over, always there's a nuance so that you never cover the same ground twice. Uh, this psalm is really a diamond with 176 facets, and each one of those facets reveals just kind of a, a different aspect of truth about the worth and value of God's Word. In terms of the structure, Psalm 119 is brilliantly designed. The, the psalm is alphabetical in the Hebrew. It consists of 22 sections. Each of those sections are named after a Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and each section has eight lines, and those lines begin with the Hebrew letter that kind of corresponds with that particular section. So, for instance, the first section of the psalm, verses 1 to 8, all of the lines of that part of the psalm, they begin with the first Hebrew letter, Aleph. And the lines of the second section, from verses 9 to 16, they all begin with the Hebrew word, Beit, which is the second letter, and then the third letter, Gimel, follows that, and the pattern continues all the way until you get to the final letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Tov. Now, we aren't exactly sure who wrote Psalm 119, but it is very likely that it was written by David. Uh, the tone and the expressions, uh, they match up very well with many of the other Psalms that were written by David, so I think that's right. Spurgeon believed that David had kind of collected these sayings as he wrote them down over the course of his life and finally compiled them into this very carefully manuscripted and organized psalm of praise for God's word. I think that's very possible. It does seem that the psalm has been compiled. Uh, as you read through the psalm, you can't help but notice that there is no logical flow from one verse to the next. Uh, each verse is kind of a self-contained, unique statement of truth about God's word. Uh, each verse makes its own unique contribution to the whole psalm, as the psalm together speaks of the worth and value of God's word. Uh, Matthew Henry and his commentators, uh, commentary said that Psalm 119 is a chest of gold rings and not a chain of gold links. I think it's a helpful picture. Obviously, there's no way that we're going to be able to say everything that should be said about Psalm 119 today. Charles Spurgeon committed some 349 pages in his commentary, The Treasury of David, to this psalm, the Puritan Thomas Manton outdid him and wrote three volumes on this psalm. Each one of those volumes were some 500 to 600 pages in length. And so the best we can hope to do with all of our inadequacy is just to get a taste, a taste of what this psalm brings us about truth from God's word. We're going to do that by asking and answering three questions. So if you're taking notes, three questions from Psalm 119 that will guide us through what I trust is an overview and hopefully a helpful taste of this glorious psalm. Three questions from Psalm 119. First question is, why should we value God's word? Why should we value God's word? The second question, how should we interact with God's word? How should we interact with God's word? And a third question, how will we be impacted by God's word? Let's look at that first question together this morning. Why should we value God's word? 
The Puritan Ezekiel Hopkins said this about the Bible. He said, the Bible is the statute book of God's kingdom, wherein is comprised the whole body of the heavenly law, the perfect rule of a holy life, and the sure promises of a glorious one. John Flavel wrote, the scriptures teach us the best way of living, the noblest way of suffering, and the most comfortable way of dying. Now, clearly, both men thought much of God's word, and it's simply true that those who know God's word best value it the most. And looking at this psalm, Psalm 119, that makes sense because this psalm over and over teaches us about why we should value God's word. So first, we should value God's word because it is a perfect display of divine truth. Verse 96 says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your command is without limit. So God's word in our statement of faith as a church is uh, said to be a perfect treasure of divine instruction. And that lines up very well with what our brother Jason Smith read for us earlier from Psalm 19, verse 7, which says the instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. We live in a world that is filled with lies and deception. What a blessing it is that we have a fountain of truth that we can go to again and again and drink deeply and know that everything we are reading and seeing is perfect and trustworthy and true. Second, we should value God's word because those who walk according to God's word are truly happy. Verses one to two, the first two verses of the psalm say, how happy are those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Lord's instruction. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. Now the word happy there in the Hebrew, it's, it's also the same word that's used in Psalm 1, which speaks of the happy man or the blessed man of Psalm 1. Uh, it's a word, this word happy, it speaks of spiritual prosperity, of spiritual blessing, of spiritual happiness. So we should value God's word because those who value God's word, those who read it, those who meditate on it, well, they're the happy ones. Uh, They're the ones who are blessed by God. God's face, as it were, smiles upon them as they live their lives. Third, we should value God's word because God's word gives us spiritual strength. Listen to verse 28. I am weary from grief. Strengthen me through your word. So many of us have found our strength sapped because of sorrow and heartache, and grief in our lives. And yet, God's word is given to us to comfort us and to strengthen us, particularly in those times. And the Psalms are such a rich resource for that. If you're grieving this morning, if you're sad this morning, go to the Psalms and you will find strength for your soul. And God will use his word to strengthen you. Fourth, we should value God's word because God's word guides us through this life. Verse 105, your word is a lamp for my feet, and a light on my path. Now, just as a lamp doesn't light up the entire forest so that you can see everything and all the trees, so in the same way, God's word does not give us every single detail about what is going to happen to us in our lives. But just as a lamp lights up your way little by little, so as we go through our lives reading God's word, we receive principles of God's wisdom and grace by which we can live so that we make wise decisions. And we follow the Lord so that we do not stumble and fall away. God's word really gives us day by day wisdom all the way to heaven. And that's why we need to read it each and every day of our lives. Fifth, we should value God's word because God's word keeps us from sin. 
Verse 11 says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. So very practically, men and women who fill their minds with the truth of God's word are less likely to fill their minds with pornographic images and other forms of immorality. They'll be less tempted to harbor bitterness and unforgiveness in their hearts. They will increasingly love the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates. In short, as they give themselves to God's word, they will be preserved. They will be kept pure. What a blessing. Six, we should value God's word because God's word delights the hearts of those who belong to Jesus. Verse 74 says, I long for your salvation, Lord, and your instruction is my delight. Now, the men and women of this world, they know absolutely nothing about this. They know nothing about reading through a passage of scripture and coming across a verse that gives you such a taste, such an insight into the glory and goodness and faithfulness of God that you're just amazed by the truth that you see and you find your soul delighting in this God that this word reveals so clearly. But those of us who are Christians, we know that joy. So how should we think about God's word? Well, we should value it. We should value it for what it is, God's perfect truth that makes us spiritually happy and gives us spiritual strength that guides us, that that keeps us from sin and that delights our hearts. Now, second question, how should we interact with God's word? The story is told of George Wishart. Wishart was a 17th century Presbyterian bishop of Edinburgh, excuse me, bishop of Edinburgh, Anglican actually. He was sentenced to death along with his famous patron, the Marquis of Montrose, for opposing Oliver Cromwell's Commonwealth during the English Civil War. He would have died that day, but there was a tradition of the time that allowed those who were condemned to death to pick a psalm to sing before they were executed. And Wishart was a clever man, and he chose Psalm 119 to be sung before his execution. And, as chance would have it, Before two-thirds of the psalm had been sung, a pardon actually arrived, and so Wishart survived his ordeal. Clearly, he was a shrewd man who knew how to use God's word for personal benefit. (laughs) But there's a better way to use God's word. And Psalm 119 overflows with instruction on how believers are supposed to interact with and use God's word. How should we interact with this divine truth? Well, more than 30 times... In Psalm 119, we are encouraged to obey God's word. Uh, God's word is not given to us as good advice. It's given to us as commands from a king on how to live. Verse 55, Lord, I remember your name in the night. I obey your instruction. Verse 63, I'm a friend to all who fear you, to those who keep your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path to follow your word. So we obey it. Some 10 times we are encouraged to love God's word. Verse 127 and 128 say, Since I love your commands more than gold, even the purest gold, I carefully follow all your precepts and hate every false way. And verse 140 says, Your word is completely pure and your servant loves it. Nine times we are encouraged to meditate upon God's word. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and think about your ways. And verse 78 says, let the arrogant be put to shame for slandering me with lies. I will meditate on your precepts. Now, what does it mean to meditate? You know, to meditate is more than just to kind of read through. Actually, to meditate is to think about. 
uh, is to take a portion of Scripture, perhaps a verse, perhaps a little more, and to, over the course of the day, think about it again and again and again, so that over time we're really massaging the truth of God's Word into our hearts. That's what we should do. We should meditate on God's truth so that the truth of God's Word is pressed into us so that we truly understand it. Now, one way to meditate is to memorize God's Word. It's to repeat the verse over and over until we're able to say that verse perfectly from memory. Verse, uh, Psalm 119, it encourages us to memorize God's Word as well. So verse 11 says, I've treasured your Word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I remember memorizing the book of James when I was in college, and I thought I'd never get to the end of the book, but ultimately I did, and by God's grace, I can still recall portions of that book, and that's been so good for my soul, as I have had that piece of God's Word hidden in my heart and other portions of God's Word as well. Well, Psalm 119 encourages us to also study and learn God's Word. Verse 68 says, you are good, and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. Verse 94 says, I'm yours, save me, for I have studied your precepts. Verse 171 says, my lips pour out praise for you. Teach me your statutes. So we should be a people that not only read God's word and meditate on God's word, but we should study it fully to understand it. And we should strive to learn it. So that, again, it is in our heart. By God's grace, we currently have seven Bible studies that are going on each week at Christ Fellowship. And if you want to learn more about God's Word, you want to begin to study God's Word, we'd love to get you connected to one of those Bible studies so that you can begin to study God's Word with us. Of course, in addition to studying God's Word, we are also to proclaim God's Word to others. And Psalm 119 presses us on to that as well, that we're to preach God's Word. We're to proclaim God's Word. Verse 13 with my lips, I proclaim all the judgments from your mouth. Verse 46, I will speak of your decrees before kings and not be ashamed. I'm very grateful for the ways that, that God has raised up individuals in this church that faithfully proclaim the truth of God's word. Uh, if you were at the corporate Bible study this past Sunday evening, our brother Bill Disk, he faithfully proclaimed God's word from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. And we were encouraged, all of us encouraged to think about what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness. You know, another way we proclaim God's word is by sharing the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. So it's evangelism. We need to proclaim the gospel, right? We need to tell, we need to tell men and women, boys and girls, the, the bad news, that we were created by God who's good and holy, but we were born sinful and separated from this good God. And so we're supposed to live for him and love him and serve him, but none of us have done that because from our earliest moments, it felt more natural to us to kind of turn our lives in on ourselves and focus on what we wanted to do and pursue kind of being a, a king or a queen of our own universe. And that's led us to sin against God. It's led us to harm many other people as well. Everyone in this room, everyone in the world has sinned against God because we are sinners and sin is serious. You know, the Bible teaches that sin, it separates us from God. It actually brings us under the wrath of God so that God is angry with us in our sin. And the Bible teaches that there is no hope at all that any of us can ever be good enough for God. There is no hope at all that any of us can do kind of enough good deeds to kind of overpower the bad things that we've done. The standard is perfection. Friend, if someone gives you a glass of water and they put a drop of cyanide in it and say, would you like to drink this? You wouldn't drink it. 
In the same way, God is perfectly holy, and nothing unholy can be before his presence. We must be perfect, and that's a problem. But it's a problem that this book addresses, and it addresses in a person, and his name is Jesus, and he lived in space and time history. He always perfectly obeyed the will of his heavenly Father. Uh, Jesus was the eternal Son of God who became a man, and he came into this world to rescue broken sinners like us. He lived a perfect life, and his mission was to sacrifice himself on the cross for sinners like us. And on the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died on the cross, but then he rose from the dead. And the good news is today, if you will turn from your sins and you'll put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone for salvation, Jesus will be your savior and all of your sins will be wiped away. They will be as far from you as the east is from the west. Uh, Even though they were like scarlet, the Bible says, they will be washed white as snow and you'll be able to stand before the God, uh, the God who's holy as one who is justified or declared righteous in Christ. And you can have boldness in the presence of God, the God who loves you. The God who adopts you as his son or daughter. Now, friend, I'm proclaiming the gospel to you today because it's a message that you need. Our brothers and sisters at Christ Fellowship, I'm proclaiming the gospel today because it's a message that we need. We need to be reminded over and over of the goodness of our God who loved us and gave himself for us so that we might be reconciled to him. Now, if you would put your trust in Christ today, that's our plea for you. If you've not trusted in Christ today, put your hope in Jesus today. Be washed and be cleansed. He will receive you. He will save you. We pray that you'll do that today. Well, brothers and sisters of Christ Fellowship, we have prayed throughout the years and continue to pray that the Lord would raise up really a culture of evangelism in our church so that it's on our hearts and minds to be sharing the good news of Christ with people who do not know it. So let's keep working towards that. And let's keep praying that God would would produce that culture in our church. Parents, let me give you a special word here as well. As parents, we have a special opportunity, a special privilege, and a special responsibility to proclaim the truth of God's word to our children so that they might know God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 to 7 says, These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Again, all the time, parents, be talking about God's word with your children. One way to do this is to have regular family devotions. Where you you gather your children together, men in particular, this is your responsibility. To read God's word with them and to pray and ask them questions about it. And to point them towards God through his word. Oh, I pray that our church would be a church that's marked by that, uh, that our families would take that serious, that, that our men in particular would take their responsibilities to be the spiritual leader in their home seriously, that we would not abdicate that responsibility and great blessing. Men, what's more important than the souls of our children? May God help us be faithful in that. Well, Psalm 119, in a particular way, speaks powerfully to our children. Listen to verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping your word. 17th century commentator Matthew Henry's father, Philip Henry, he encouraged his children to meditate on one verse of Psalm 119 every day. 
so that at the end of the year, they would have meditated their way through the chapter twice. The famous missionary to China and Africa, David Livingston, he had all of Psalm 119 memorized by the time that he was nine years old. Perhaps, perhaps we challenge our children too little to know God's word. Well, beyond all this, Psalm 119 challenges us to have a holy reverence for God's word. Look at verse 120. There the psalmist says, I tremble in awe of you. I fear your judgments. In verse 161, princes have persecuted me without cause, but my heart fears only your word. Augustine told of a man who was very simple. So simple that it seemed like he wasn't even able to reason clearly, like he lacked that ability. And this man was incredibly patient when it came to any abuse that came to him personally, any insult that came to him personally. But when he heard other people talking uh, blasphemously about the name of Christ, he could not bear it. And he would take up stones and throw it at them to make them stop. He would even do that to the governors over the district where he lived. Now, I'm not advocating that we should be throwing stones. I am advocating that part of what it means to follow Jesus is that we would have a deep reverence in our hearts for God, and we would have a deep reverence for his word. Along with reverence, Psalm 119 encourages us to desire God's word. Listen to verse 20. I'm continually overcome with longing for your judgments. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commands. So brother and sister, what about you? Do you long for God's word? Does that word pant mean anything to you? It's, it's very easy, isn't it, to, to grow cold towards Scripture. That, that happens. We're like swimming upstream, and we have to constantly push against the current in the Christian life. It's so easy for us to fall back and become cold towards the Lord and even towards His Word, which is an amazing reality. So what should we do? Well, by God's grace, we should pick up the Bible every day. And by faith trusting in God to give us grace, we should doggedly pursue God. We should pursue him through his word. And as we do so, we should pray that God would give us a deep desire, not just to know about him, but to know him and have a deep relationship with him. Let me tell you, let me encourage you that every time as you do that, God is faithful And your desire for his word and for his person will grow. So that at at the beginning, it may feel like you're eating shredded wheat because it's good for you. But over time, it will become sweeter and sweeter until you daily meet with God and his word. And that time will be something to you like apple pie with ice cream on top, which is a good thing to eat. And if you desire to read God's word or to study it, but you don't feel like you know how, or perhaps you're just kind of struggling how to do that faithfully, Uh, There are men and women in this church that we can connect you with who will help you do that, who will read God's word with you and encourage you to be someone that reads God's word every day. Now, what will happen to us? What will happen to us as we obey, love, meditate upon, memorize, study, proclaim, reverence, and grow in our desire for God's word? What will happen? Well, we will be changed. We will be transformed. We will be impacted. And that brings us to our Third question this morning, how will we be impacted by God's word? Philip Henry, who we mentioned earlier in the sermon, he said this, he said, all grace grows as love to the word of God grows. 
That's very important. All grace grows as love to the word of God grows. It's true. God's word is powerful. And we see the power of God's word in our own lives as we are impacted by it little by little, painfully, slowly. Yes, we wish it was faster. But as we are faithful to be in God's word, as we're trusting God by his grace, he does change us. He does help us change. He does help us grow. He does that. Let me conclude the sermon this morning by briefly giving you four ways that God's word will impact us as we treasure it. First, God's word will keep us from shame. That's what it says in verses 5 to 6 of Psalm 119. If only my ways were committed to keeping your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I think about all your commands. The psalmist is teaching us that those who delight in God's word, well, they will keep away from those sins that would lead them to shame. Even though if you notice, the psalmist also helpfully indicates that he still struggles with that. And we do too. We do struggle. But as we study God's word, we will, we will increasingly be unashamed as God by his grace helps us to, to flee sin and pursue righteousness. Better, as we pursue the Lord through his word, we will we'll be making for ourselves what the apostle Peter called an abundant entrance into heaven. So that when we stand before Jesus, there will be this great joy of being there and this great thankfulness for what God has done because he's helped us to live in a way that has honored the Lord. That is possible. Christ Fellowship, we have to know that. We do not have to go to heaven struggling and defeated. I'm not saying that we will not sin. I am saying that it is possible to run the race so as to win the prize, which is precisely what we are called to do. God can help us do that. Second, God's word will enlarge our minds. Verse 18, open my eyes so that I may contemplate wondrous things from your instruction. Verse 99 and 100 say, I have more insight than all my teachers because your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the elders because I obey your precepts. Young people, let me speak to you. If all week long you do nothing but consume social media and movies, your mind will be constricted. You will know the things that those kind of cultural elites who shape that media want you to know, and you will not know those things that they do not want you to know. Your mind will not be broad. It will be constricted. In the same way, adults who consume too much news, well, you'll be enraged when the newsmakers want you to be enraged. And in our day, that's all the time. Watching the news for many Christians is an exercise in sin. And it's something we need to take seriously so that we are not led astray and we are easily led astray. May God help us. But here's the thing. If you give yourself to God's word, you will be confronted with the infinite God. That's what the psalmist is saying here. Contemplate wondrous things. Ultimately, contemplate a wondrous person. An infinite person. And as we contemplate God, our minds will be expanded by contemplating something that is beyond us. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. 
It is a subject so vast that all of our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and then we feel a kind of self-content and go on our way with the thought, behold, I am wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thoughts that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild donkey's colt. And with a solemn explanation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the thought of God will humble you, brother or sister, it will expand your mind. It will make you, in the words of the psalmist, wiser than your teachers. So let me ask you, how much time each week are you spending watching television? Now let me ask you, how much time each week are you spending in God's Word? Third, God's Word will give you great joy. Verse 161, I rejoice over your promise like one who finds vast treasure. And to this, I can only say that the people who I've met who are the most joy-filled and joyful despite their circumstances are the ones who know God's word best and spend the most time in it. Fourth, God's word will give us spiritual life. Verse 25, my life is down in the dust. Give me life through your word. And verse 144, your decrees are righteous forever. Give me understanding and I will live. And it's true. God's word gives us spiritual life through his word. James chapter 1 verse 18 tells us that. It is also true that God sustains and strengthens the spiritual life that he has given us through his word by his spirit. So that Andrew Murray called God's word the bread of heaven. And the spiritual life of the man or woman who feeds upon God's word, that spiritual life will be strengthened. It's what God's word does. You know, Christ fellowship, we should be so grateful. We should be so grateful that we have copies of God's word in our homes. How did that happen? Well, two years after Tyndale's death, God answered his prayer and moved in the heart of King Henry VIII, King of England, to order that the Miles Coverdale Bible would be read in English in every parish in England. The Coverdale Bible was largely based on Tyndale's work, as also was the later King James Version, which many of us grew up reading. Tyndale's own Bible was approved for public reading in 1539. Now, 500 years later, we have this precious gift of God's word in our heart language that we can pick up and read and meditate on and memorize and proclaim to others. What are we doing with it? May God help us to take up his word every day and value it and treasure it all the way to heaven. And as we do so, we will be transformed. I love what Jeff Thomas had to say about this. He said, let the word break over your heart and mind again and again as the years go by. And imperceptibly, there will come great changes in your attitude and outlook and conduct. You will probably be the last to recognize these. Often you will feel very, very small because increasingly the God of the Bible will become to you wonderfully great. So go on reading it until you can read it no longer 
And then you will not need the Bible anymore. Because when your eyes close for the last time in death and never again read the word of God in scripture, you will open them to see the word of God in the flesh. That same Jesus of the Bible whom you have known for so long, standing before you to take you forever to his eternal home. Let's pray.